Hi everyone, I'm Akarsh. I'm a principal with the investment team at Elevation Capital. And we have today Sarthak Jain with us, who is the co-founder and CEO of Nanonets. We partnered with Nanonets and Sarthak last year, sometime in June, in their Series A round. But we have been observing the Nanonets journey from the very early days. And it has been a fabulous story of resilience, innovation, and iterations. Before I hand over to Sarthak, quickly about Nanonets. So Nanonets is a no-code, AI-driven automation platform, giving businesses smarter ways to run document-based operations such as capturing data, storing and routing documents associated with spend management, procurement processes, loyalty reward programs, and more. What excited us about Nanonets was the fact that the product was cutting edge, but still so easy to use based on the innovations the team had done, and how Sarthak and Pratmesh with very little capital had figured out a scalable PMF. Without much further ado, I would like to welcome Sarthak, co-founder and CEO of Nanonets and a very good friend. And Sarthak, I know you are very media shy, but I'm super excited to be here. Hey, Akash. Thanks for the kind introduction. Really excited to be here. It's been a fun journey building Nanonets, partnering with Elevation and trying to solve our customers' problems. Likewise, Sarthak, and it's been a truly a pleasure for us to watch you from the sidelines and cheering you all the way along. Why don't we start from the beginning, Sarthak, you know, right from the days of your first startup and how all of that led to Nanonets. Also, this is not the first avatar you started with, right? I mean, the idea of Nanonets itself has been launched quite a few times. Would love to hear about that. So I, I met my co-founder Prathamesh during our undergraduate, where both of us started our first company, Qubit. That company was subsequently acquired by Mitra, and then we went on to start Nanonets. Both of us have been working in the area of machine learning for about 10 years since our undergraduate days. And one of the learnings that we've had through that process and journey is that it's very easy to build machine learning prototypes and machine learning demos and create machine learning within AI research labs. But it's very difficult for software teams to be able to integrate these cutting edge technologies into production environments. And we saw this consistently across all the places we worked, including our own startup. So the problem that we really set out to solve was how do we take cutting edge machine learning and make it accessible to any software team. And we decided to go down the same approach as how identity today is a solved problem or sending an SMS is a solved problem, which is essentially an API first approach to solving this problem where software teams no longer have to worry about the complexity or the intricacies of the machine learning algorithm and can sort of just make an API call to get a prediction or train a model. And that's the problem that we sort of set out to solve. In doing so, we realized that the single biggest request that we used to get from our customers where we wanted to automate processes in machine learning was, can you help us with our document or manual workflows, which were essentially bringing the physical world into the digital. And we've sort of doubled down on that. And that's the value prop that we provide to our customers today. Got it. That was super helpful, Sarthak. And in this journey, you know, what were the key aha moments? And these can be, you know, before you sort of pivoted to this recent avatar of Nanonets, this can be after. Also, I mean, a big question in this document extraction thesis, I think, was just a competition, right? I mean, you need to get an idea, you know, that if this is a problem worth solving. There were sort of competitors and legacy players like Abby Kofax and then open source tools like Amazon Extract. There is Google Docs API. So there were a few macro bets that you were taking on the technology, on the market, and at the same time, sort of assessing the existing solutions and saying, you know, there are gaps here, you know. So while the market has some players, there is a very clear niche or a very clear problem that we can solve. So would love to hear a bit about both. Sure. So in terms of aha moments, I wouldn't say it's really been one thing, but we have some key deep understandings, but we've sort of taken a very marketing first approach to building product where we started off by identifying key user persona. 
starting to produce content for that persona which was uh, people looking to tinker with ai based solutions or looking to find out what's the cutting edge we produced a lot of content and we started publishing about what is the cutting edge for ai in finance or any other industry and when we had users come in look at this and look at our platform we kept getting user requests you know i need to be able to solve x process or y process and that is what sort of gave us insight into what to build for our customers and that's sort of the bet that we're taking which is these small components or small small software tools that are built to solve business processes get replaced by ai and you have a very ai first approach to solving these problems and that's the sort of big aha moment but it's a lot of small iterations that we get feedback from customers and we build an iterate the really big bet for us is that today if you want to solve a small business process you get a software engineer to write some script or write some tool or there are even no code tools but you still need to write some custom logic as to what needs to happen we believe an ai first approach to solving that looks like you just show it 10 examples of the business process that you're looking to run and then the ai automatically learns how to solve that process just to give you an example let's say you know in the process of doing this podcast you are looking for a reimbursement for some software you purchased you submit that as a reimbursement request to your company that gets routed to some finance department then to your manager for approval and then eventually you get paid into your bank account that's a month long process we've sort of short circuited that by saying can i learn from the last 100 reimbursement requests that have happened and automate this process without anybody having to write any software or any no code based rules and that's the big aha for us that we've seen this working and we've sort of seen this process play out the legacy providers that you sort of spoke about provide piecemeal solutions to this where you have to glue multiple things together to be able to solve this process end to end and we're saying that you know if you have a smart enough ai intelligent bot it should be able to learn this process end to end that's the big bet for us got it and i think sort of a good segue into the problem specific to saas with this example so this is one learning i've had you know i mean the your customer profile your gtm and your product in a saas business are all closely linked now as you spoke about these problems right and as you spoke about these legacy providers they are one these problems have existed for a while and second these legacy providers are solving these problems in some way right so what i wanted to understand was that you know how did you identify your icp right and then you have sort of done a phenomenal job of building a strong inbound gtm which gets the customers for whom our product works very well so how did you zero in on this matrix right this is the icp which is facing this problem and this is the product which will solve this problem and then this is how the gtm would work because if one of these pieces don't match then it's back to the drawing board again so any early anecdotes on the experiments just will help our listeners a lot and i'd love to say that you know we had some genius insight that we knew from day one that this is going to be our icp and just this is the problem we're going to solve but it's sort of been a lot of learning and the way we've done it is we sort of uh, love ai we love tinkering with new solutions so we produced content for people like us who started consuming this content and who were fascinated by some of the same things and then we started listening to them and talking to them and understanding what their problems are what are the things that you can actually solve in today's world using real world ai that can solve these problems so it's mostly just about listening and talking to users as opposed to having a very deep insight that we began with the only thing i will say is we understood that this is the user persona that we want to go after 
and the big challenge for most companies is let's say the canonical advice is to go talk to your users it assumes two things that one you know who your users are and two you know how to be able to talk to them you can have some broad level of understanding or of who your user is then the second part is figuring out how to talk to them so a really easy way is find users similar to you and second is produce content that you would find interesting yourself that sort of ends up solving both problems you get users and then it's very easy to talk to them and from there you can sort of ask them what their pain points are and then try to sort of narrow in on what's feasible, what's a real problem, are these painkillers or are these vitamins and all of that kind of approach. But saying that this is the product and this is the problem I'm solving in some ways, it makes it sound too easy. I think identifying the users is probably the easier thing to do. Got it. And just sort of a follow on to that. So the users that you decided ultimately on, how long did it take you, you know, to say that, okay, this is my user persona that I would go after? I think that's been work in progress and maybe I'd say even initially, maybe six to 12 months is the journey that it took us from starting to do that to saying that, okay, now we have something repeatable because you will always find people willing to talk to you and willing to tell you their problems. The challenge is finding repeatability in those problems and figuring out if there's a business model that you can solve. So I'll, I'll give you one example, which is we initially produce content that was very interesting to drone enthusiasts where people wanted to build solutions based on drones in identifying objects. And what we realized, okay, maybe a lot of these people are telling us that there is a problem, but it was close to impossible to be able to monetize that problem just because of the nature of the industry. So you may have some misses there. You may even identify an ICP, but that may be a complete miss because there's no business to be built there. Got it. And this I'm assuming was the zero to one million ARR kind of a journey, right? So any more insights there would help. Also, you know, would love to understand how the journey beyond 1 million in ARR has been for you. Because I hear again in SaaS that every, you know, every, in the initial days, every million in ARR and then over time, every 5 to 10 million in ARR is a different sort of a journey. Different persona, different GTM, different channels and so on, right? And maybe different products even. So would love to borrow some learnings from there as well, Sathana. Sure. So it's been interesting for us where we've done the 0 to 1 million journey twice now where we first went from zero to over a million dollars, went back to zero and then went from zero to one again. And this is unfortunate that you can have false starts where you could be doing north of a million dollars in revenue and still may not have PMF. And the challenge becomes in that sort of the problem with the zero to one journey, which is you don't try to do things efficiently. You find customers, you solve their problems, they pay you money. And this is the problem B2B where you could do this and you're not worried too much about is this efficient or is this am i doing things efficiently and then when you try to scale that million beyond you may realize that oh this is terribly inefficient i can't really make any money doing this and you may have to start from scratch and that's sort of the difference between the zero to one and the million to 10 million journey which is in zero to one you can do anything and everything to make customers happy and from a million to 10 you're just basically looking at optimizing things and sort of getting better at doing things you can't be involved in every decision yourself you have to delegate you have to hire a team so it's that optimization that happens from 1 to 10 and optimization at scale probably that happens from you know 10 to 20 20 to 30 etc but then the other question that here is you know the just the feedback loop right given all of these are different journeys and like let's say you know i mean consumer business is not easy but in a consumer sort of a company a consumer tech company you are doing some marketing you are getting customers you are sort of the feedback cycles are slower right and in this case in SaaS, the feedback cycles are very long at times quarters two quarters and so on right so you don't get as many shots at the goal even to define your playbook so what would be your advice to a lot of these early stage founders right how do they measure pmf how do they measure channel market fit a product channel fit, what are, you know, the good signals to look for, what signals to avoid, basically, you know, and maybe there is 
no recipe, but how should one think about this initial journey wherein you are still trying to measure PMF, identify the right product and so on? Sure. So I'll take that in two parts. I think the first one is the comparison of B2B, B2C and why it's much lower. And then the second part of seeing, you know, if it's a false start or real. So on the first question, there is one very key reason why B2B and B2C are very different where, you know, B2C, there is a yes, no buying decision or a yes, no app install or yes, no, I want to buy a phone for e-commerce. And it's very simple, straightforward. It might happen in 30 minutes, sometimes longer, but not too long. The problem with a B2B business, it's never a yes or a no. It's always a maybe. And it's always like, yeah, this is great, but I may need XYZ to really solve my problem. And you sort of always have to take that with a pinch of salt. Plus, it's never one person making a decision. Yes, you are selling to a business, but a business is not really a decision-making entity. The decision-making entity is always individuals within the business. So you end up having to sell to five different people or getting five different yeses before you actually make a sale. So the cycles are much longer because it takes two to three months to even figure out if what you've built is something that somebody's willing to pay money for, as opposed to in consumer where you will get an instant response to whatever you've put out there. Now, having said that, the good thing about B2B is that because it's always a maybe, you've never lost a customer and you can always build the incremental thing or build the additional feature to be able to get that person to say yes. And which then brings me to the other part of the question, which is how do you sort of figure out if this person is really buying your product or are they just, you know, getting you to build product for them, which is a real problem in the zero to one journey. And you sort of have to almost say no to everything until you get five people saying the same thing, which is, yes, this is on my product roadmap, but you have to buy the product right now. Give me a yes, no, not a maybe. And every single thing that is not a yes is a no. And you can build the feature out and get back to the customer and maybe convert them at a later date. But trying to build solutions for customers is probably the thing that will sort of get you into the spiral loop of, you know, being stuck there and not building something repeatable. But then if five people tell you the same thing, then you go out and build it. So having great tracking of, okay, these are the feature requests. These are the things that I need to build to be able to get the next set of customers is useful. And the trap you can fall into is not saying no to customers because you get so few of them. And that's the part of the inefficiency where you don't really care about, you know, saying getting a hundred people to sign up. You care about getting one person to sign up and doing that repeatably to get to a hundred happy customers. And that would sort of be, you can say that's PMF, but if you're just building custom solutions for all the people you sort of end up talking to, that'll get you into that death spiral. And now switching to the customer side, right? But sort of borrowing from this answer as well, Sartak. So one, do you remember landing your first customer, right? One, so how did that happen and how did you feel after that? Also, from the earlier question as well, right? So how do you decide when to say no, essentially, right? In those early days, you are in that discovery journey. You do have no idea of the product or limited idea of the product you were trying to build, right? So how do you, again, know what parts to say no to, right? And what parts to say yes to, right? And maybe some examples in your cases would help 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 our listeners. Sure. So great question again on how do you say no to. I'll sort of talk about a framework and maybe then give an example later from our first customer. So the framework I'd use to say no is actually never saying no, but just saying that it's in our backlog. And then just keeping a backlog of everything that people have requested for and just keep a tally. And you pick the one that is the most requested feature. So you're really not saying no to Anything you're just saying, I'll do it at a later date, but you want to buy the product today or not. And whenever that feature is live, go back to the customer. And I sort of think that's the simplest way of solving it as opposed to, you know, saying no to customers all the time. Having said that, when do you really, you know, just say, okay, I'll build it tomorrow for you because there will be cases where because you're a fast number team, you only have one or two customers. You just say yes and build the feature right then and there. I think 
that is sort of a gut call where if it aligns with product vision you have and you should have some sense of product vision at least in the short term so if it aligns very clearly with your product vision you should go ahead and do it but don't stick to your product vision for too long not everybody is steve jobs and not everybody has that level of consumer insight where they can be like yeah this is exactly what i'm going to build you might have some inclination and some insight but don't stick to it too deeply where what customers want is at the end of it the right thing not what you want to build and you you did a bit of it yourself right i mean there was this earlier product which was on the image recognition side i think and then you pivoted to this document extraction side same probably the same underlying tech but different products different personas so you have done it yourself as well right sure yeah so i'll sort of walk you through that journey as well and our first customer our first customer i remember quite vividly was this south african company who wanted to monitor a construction site using a drone and we didn't have technology to be able to do that and we sort of built it in a week to be able to get that customer we used to charge them $99 a month for doing this and at that time it felt like a big win and we built a lot of custom solutioning for them and then we got some repeat customers we got a customer testimonial we got some repeat customers doing the same thing and you know super happy and excited about this some of our larger customers we got because maybe investor made an introduction to somebody and we had asked for intro to a specific company and we got it and we were doing content moderation in those cases now there were slightly divergent use cases but what we felt was underlying technology was common the platform was common we were building a product the place where it sort of went wrong was in the gtm where all of them required slightly different uh, gtm motions and what some people fail to miss is yes you can have the same product but if you have different gtm motions then it's not really the same product the go to market motion essentially ties into your product and if you don't have the same mechanism of acquiring customers then those are different product lines and as a startup you can't have different product lines you have to have one product line that gives you majority of your revenue and that is what scales if you have multiple different go to market channels you are going to have a lot of start stops and that was the biggest problem that was plaguing us and there was a heavy services component where the problems across customers didn't end up looking the same and they couldn't still utilize it entirely on their own when we moved to this or actually customers kept coming and telling us we want this document data extraction solution and it was essentially the same thing over and over again and it looked like the exact same product the exact same go to market which is why we sort of decided that let's pivot and it was a very hard decision I think if i'm not wrong we were at like maybe 1.5 million dollars in arr and we sort of went back to zero and then started from there so tough call but you have to look at the patterns and see that you know does this scale can i go from a million to 10 million quickly and if you can't then maybe some hard calls need to be taken but i don't think there's any framework for it it's sometimes got and maybe a story of your toughest customer right which was the toughest customer win for you and i'm assuming most of them would be today with you as well right so would love to understand the both how did you win those and second how the journey since winning has been Sure. The toughest customers are always uh, enterprise customers when you sort of enjoy winning them as well. But the big challenge becomes that there are ten different stakeholders, and they each want a slightly different either you can say problem solved or a different product. If you each ask them to draw what the exact product looks like, they'll all say different things, and you need to find an intersection of all of those things. And sometimes they may be counter to what each of them is saying. So finding an intersection of that and pitching that as a product is probably. the toughest i remember landing our first fortune 500 customer was probably one of the toughest sales cycles are much longer maybe it took 3 months for us to be able to land them and you really end up enjoying that a lot because you never know up until the end you know if this is going to happen you always have a feeling that yes it's going to sign today it's going to sign today and it's always a big win when you can get it done but the biggest challenge there is navigating stakeholders building something that multiple people can say yes to and when that happens you 
sort of realize the fact that okay you are solving a real problem because if 10 people can agree within an organization that yes this solves a problem then that's a big vote of confidence correct satak i think we spoke and in the intro spoke a bit about you know the various use cases nanonet solves but you know if you can spend some time on the key ones that we are solving today right and maybe two or three case studies where we have really made a deep impact right to these use cases in our customers i think i think that will that will sure absolutely so the primary value proposition that nanonets offers to its customers are automating manual workflows so any workflow that you have today that is highly manual in nature paper driven we automate so some examples are accounts payable reimbursements onboarding vendors those kinds of things are all automated using nanonets we can take a new document it could be a pdf image scanned document we can take that extract the relevant data send it to the correct person for approval we can apply automated approval rules and then let's say it's an invoice extract the vendor information extract all of the correct routing who needs to approve it and then also get the vendor paid so we integrate with your inbox or wherever the vendor is sending it send it to the right platform if you're using slack for approval and then connect to your bank to get the invoice paid so marrying each of these different functions with the ai element and the workflow element and approvals is essentially what nanonets does large part of our traction is in the financial services domain where finance offices end up using us for automating a lot of their manual processes got it maybe two three you know examples where you have sort of phenomenally changed the lives of of your few customers sure so there is this one customer which was really interesting to see there a company that manages rental units they have maybe close to 100000 rental units they started with us when they were below 1000 and they had one person looking at automating so when you have these rental units you need to process all of the work orders that come in do the upkeep and they generate a large volume of invoices but as they scale from under 1000 to a few 100000 they've not added more than that one person and through that one person they've managed to continue getting this operation running so seeing their business scale is really exciting and you know knowing the fact that we're adding value and helping their company grow that's sort of really rewarding for us and our team sarth can again i mean i very often you know you i give give the example of the team right so we went through tough times and you know a large part of our team has stuck and grown with us even during that time right so any learnings on the you know on how you build such a strong affinity within the team what did you look for while hiring these people how have you built this culture that philosophy if you can elaborate upon sarthak yeah so i think we've gone through some really tough times where that the time i mentioned we sort of pivoted went from 1.5 million to 0 arr we were also out of money at the same time and covid happened simultaneously so it was like a triple whammy but the good thing that happened to us is we had hired what i would call quote unquote startup people where these were all people who were either founders previously or employee number 1 or employee number 2 at a early stage startup so they had seen this journey and they all sort of stuck through it so we didn't have any sort of people churn through that journey and everybody was sort of really excited at still doing this even though there was no money and there was no revenue that was coming in either so going through that journey we knew that especially in early days of startup if people have seen uncertainty and are not faced by it that's the kind of people that you require scaling organizations may require different kinds of people but early stages of startups it's super useful to have people who seen that kind of uncertainty before and don't get faced by it but we've sort of always focused on the kind of people we're hiring and seeing do they have first principles 
mindset of you know wanting to solve tough problems not just in it because the startup is the cool thing to do they are truly interested in the kind of problems we're solving and you know making sure we do right by them and keep them motivated that's been our philosophy got it got it very super helpful and i don't know if you referred to that but the culture of transparency that you maintain internally right i think that was one thing again when we were investing we we sort of were inspired by a lot inspired and impressed by a lot right so i think that helps further right it just helps the just just inspire so much trust in the team and feel like they belong to to the company and not just they're not just coming there to to give their input yeah so i'll tell you a little bit about what we've done in terms of transparency where each of the people we have on our team we treat as owner of the company where we try and give them as much information as is possible there was to the point where every single email that came into the company and went out was sort of publicly accessible including let's say if elevation sent us a term sheet that would hit the inboxes of every single person working at nanorats it's been tough to scale that because just of email volume but we still continue to have that level of transparency wherever possible the thing that it does is it sort of makes everybody aligned with what the company is doing there is no misalignment in you know what's happening there is no second guessing the fact that information is being withheld from you and that does make people feel like they truly you know are part owners in the company as well Sadak, moving on to the stuff you enjoy probably more. AI, ML. I mean, the advancements have been just phenomenal, right? I even I started following those when I started spending time on SaaS, which is two, three years ago, right? But every few months and now maybe few weeks, right? There is something disruptive coming out of OpenAI or you know the Dali sort of release that was Dali two release that was there, right? So, what do you think? You know, the implication of this is for nanonets and broader AI startups in general, and we are sort of. hearing a lot of things around generative ai right now right and it's probably the new in thing so would love to hear your view on both this broader trend and the implication of this innovation on nanonets sure absolutely and ai innovation is one thing i can sort of at least think about all day maybe i don't have enough to say about the topic but at least reading and thinking about it i can spend all day doing it i've seen this now approximately for 14 years and it always i am blown away by the cool new demo always the challenge always is how do you take the cool new demo create a product out having said that the thing that ends up happening is ai research moves at such a pace where whatever was the cool new thing 3 months back may be redundant Three months later, and we've seen that with Dali as well. I mean, you mentioned that, but like stable diffusion, where Dali, the business model was supposed to be that you know we'll sell you APIs and we'll charge per API call, and uh, stable diffusion came in with an open source version. I'm sure the folks at Dali wouldn't have thought that it's possible to create a open source version, and they would have said that's our moat. <laughs> but within, I think it was a couple of months, stable diffusion was launched as a open source variant. Now, I think that keeps is going to keep happening. An anecdote is that about ten years back. the work that i did as a machine learning researcher is like that work could be done by a computer in one minute and my job has already been replaced so the first people to lose their jobs and when ai research happens is the ai researchers themselves and then you know it's interesting to see how it pan out for others but the two points one is how ai business models evolve i think that's an open question where if everything is going to become open source then you know do you really have a mode that you can create and i think the answer is yes which is if you can create vertical applications as well as software around the ai so it's not really the ai algorithm that you end up selling but it's the user experience and the software around the ai algorithm that becomes the mode and then obviously distribution where companies who have the best distribution will continue to win
but it may be faster cycles where adobe getting replaced by figma getting replaced by canva i'm not sure these are chronologically correct but let's say the next one may replace the figma in 2 years as opposed to 6 8 years and that pace of innovation will keep up so you know it's a chase for figma to be able to keep up with the innovation going to the second part of the earlier question itself right so how do you think of the evolution of nanonets in this in relation to this innovation right and maybe how you think about the next spurt of growth then for nanonets and if possible maybe give us a quick sneak peek into the product roadmap sure so one key part of what we do is it seems like we're replacing people's jobs and that's something that gets called out all the time but the thing we've seen consistently is we don't replace jobs but we make people more productive and that's a key theme of what we end up doing so the example that i took where you know one person was handling a thousand invoices can now handle 100000 invoices that's essentially the roadmap that we see and making people more productive where let's say ai researchers itself using ai to replace their jobs so they can do 10 people's job that is sort of the future of what we're envisioning and how we see ourselves play out the role in that is that as we're automating workflows we feel that all workflows that are touching businesses sort of start getting automated where mundane uh, boring jobs are getting replaced if i talk to anybody and ask them what's the two things you hate about your job i consistently hear two responses which is one is i hate my boss and the second one is i hate the manual work that i have to do i can't do anything about hating your boss but i can sort of try and replace the boring mundane work that you have to do and that's sort of our goal with nanonets that how can we take everything that's menial boring redundant repetitive and try to automate that with machine learning i don't think the problem goes away anytime soon and i don't think just the nature of cutting edge ai is the thing that works but sort of creating software tools that help integrate everything and make everything work seamlessly that's the true future for us awesome thanks a lot sarthak it has been a real real pleasure to see you and pratmesh build a cutting edge global company out of india and all of us are super excited to see what what lies ahead thanks again for spending this time absolutely thank you for partnering with us having continued to have faith in what we're doing and it's been super exciting building this company together with elevation looking forward to the next 10 years of building cutting edge solutions